0: I hadn't quite wrapped my mind around the magnitude of what God was about to give me in putting it on my heart these past several months to preach through the fourth gospel written, the human author anyway, the Apostle John. In John's gospel, it's unique. You'll see that as we go through this fourth gospel. It's unique in what it doesn't include. Uh, John figuring in his late years that it would be a redundancy to repeat the things that have been so ably and capably recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are considered the synoptics, in that they're synthesizing the birth account, making it clear the genealogies are there, the Christ child growing up, there's a number of things that are in the synoptics that are not included in John, and yet John's gospel is perfectly com- complementary to those gospels. It doesn't set itself apart in some um, a way that is contrasting or, or different in any way. It's powerful in its own right, and powerful is really an understatement, especially as you begin to look into this. I I am so looking forward to this journey through this gospel with you all as the Lord has us. I didn't know if we'd get past the prologue, you know, verse 1 to 5. And I gave up on that quite a while back as Charles and I talked about it. I can't get past the first verse. The first verse is powerful. So, eternal life is rooted in the knowledge of God, and it takes God to reveal God. And that's what we have here. We have God's self revelation. There is no stronger account of the deity of Jesus Christ than the fourth gospel, the gospel according to John. And so, we're going to take the time that the Lord appoints for us to get through this gospel. I pray that He gives me enough time to get through this gospel. There's so much here. There's so much here. And when I realized I wasn't going to make it through the prologue, the verse, first five verses, I started looking at each one and I thought each one deserves not only its own sermon, but perhaps its own series. I realized that this Verse, this first opening verse, John, I don't know how, he could have picked a more profound and powerful opening to this gospel. It's absolutely remarkable. He is, of course, identifies himself as the disciple that Jesus loved and If you were in your exercise of humility as the human instrument chosen by the Lord to write a gospel, and you thought it's the better part of humility not to mention your own name in that gospel, what would you pick? Yes, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But it it occurred to me, I don't just bring that up as a whimsical point, but rather to point out the fact that we have to remind ourselves that Love requires intimate knowledge, doesn't it? We talk about that a lot around here. Love seeks to? No, that's right. It's knowledge as the Bible unpacks that wonderful term gnosis in the Greek. Epignosis, that intimate, intimate, deep sense of knowledge. They used to refer to a husband and wife coming together to produce a child as having carnal knowledge. There was a reason for that. There isn't a more intimate physical activity that that occurs between two people who know each other perhaps better than any other person on the planet. And the outcome of that is sincere and powerful love. It comes with this kind of knowledge, and this kind of knowledge is revealed in this book. So he's the longest surviving. We want to remember why it is that he wrote this gospel. This is quite some years, perhaps decades, after the other apostles are long gone. And the synoptics are written. They've been circulating for some time, a long length of time. Why should John write? Well, he had grown deeper, didn't he? He had opportunity to grow much deeper. Having been banished to the island of Patmos by the emperor Domitian for a period of years, we don't know exactly how long, but it was the full length of Domitian's reign, when Nerva became the emperor, he was allowed to come back to Ephesus otherwise. So he spent a number of years, many years in Ephesus. Then he got put out on Patmos. He's years out there. And then he's brought back, perhaps writing anywhere from the 80s to the 90s AD. So the earlier Gospels had gotten out at least... Uh, A couple of decades before that, they've been circling through the churches. But see, by by John's time already, think about it. It reminded me of Revelation, which he also wrote from the island of Patmos. What happens in chapter 2 and 3? Already, seven of the major churches in Asia Minor are not doing so well. I mean, and these aren't small issues. If you've got to have the living Christ call you into the third heaven as John, bring you up to glory to have him write indictments to these churches, fair to say, you're in trouble. So John is aware of this. John's aware of the troubles. Even if he hadn't re- written Revelation, even if he have not been shown that yet. My point is the time frame. He would have been aware of the troubles that are happening in the church, how the, the false teaching that's entered into those churches, the lack of love, the Church of Ephesus, and so on. All of those churches are struggling greatly. Save the church in Philadelphia. So he knows this. And so he has friends, he has people close to him that are urging him to write a fourth gospel. That comes from the extra-biblical record, the historical record. We learn from the early church fathers who had lived right after John or even overlapping with John as his disciple Polycarp did before he was martyred. And then he taught Irenaeus and so on. So they, they were re- very close. And so they were well aware of what was going on. They were well aware of the reasons that John wrote. And so the story would have been very fresh that he was urged to write, to clarify something. And what do you suppose that clarification would mean? What is most attacked by the enemy with regard to Christ? His deity. Here we have the revelation of Jesus not only as the Christ, but the Son of the living God. We can't get past the first verse before we realize that. In the beginning was the Word. You can't get past the first clause, can you? The Word, what, was with God. Whoa, the Word was God. We could close our Bibles on that, yeah? We could, but we don't want to. This is the very beginning. This is the opening. He opens with this. But it makes sense, doesn't it? He's been around a long time. He knows what he has to clarify. And he's going to do it. But the word choice that he makes is nothing less than astounding. And and, and I want to spend the balance of our time. This is a deep dive. This is a deep dive. The terms that he uses in this verse to refer to Christ has been around a long time before Christ. And I want to share that with you as we move forward on this. So he's encouraged by friends. He's urging the spirit to write what they had called a spiritual gospel. So there's, there's a spiritual gospel. Well, what are the other ones? Well, they're genealogical. They're, they, they, they record the life of Christ. They, they share all of his parables. John doesn't. So, something spiritual needs to happen. Something real. Something beyond just the record of the life of Christ as a man. We need to see Christ as God. And that's what He brings us. That's precisely what He brings us. This is the spiritual gospel. This fourth gospel. Amazing. So, let's start here, shall we? If... if Like F.F. Bruce says, in this gospel, we're given the mind of Christ that we might hear the voice of Christ. Are you ready for this? I am, and yet, no. How can somebody ready themselves for hearing from the voice of Jesus Christ? He very much speaks through these original manuscripts, these original words that are now translated in a vernacular that we can understand in our day. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. What is he saying? We're going to have to take this slow, aren't we? We're going to have to look carefully. Because I know this, and we all need to know this. Let's set the stage for this so we can appreciate it. Shall we? Okay. The fall of man included that full sense, that full doctrine of human depravity includes something called the noetic effects of sin. That means the what is fallen? The mind if we have the revelation of the mind of Christ, not just in John's Gospel, by the way, Paul mentions it, right? To the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 2.16, where he says, we have what? The mind of Christ. How come we don't act like it? That would be a fair question to ask. We've got this mind of Christ that's revealed to us. But it's fallen. So, the basic... Physical, neurological, mental activity of cognition is still happening because we're thinking, acting, making decisions, forming opinions, yeah? We're coming up with ideas that form ideologies. We're we're still thinking, aren't we? But we're missing the light of the truth of who Christ is. If you're missing that light, you have no hope of understanding reality, of understanding what's really true and what's not. Been a little confused about that lately or attempts made to your mind to have you question what is truth? Did you feel like Pilate from time to time as you saw what was happening in our day come across your mind? What is truth? Well, you can't know because your mind's dark. So you're left with cognition. You're thinking, but you are what are you thinking about? What are you thinking from? What's the what's etiology the of my thoughts? What's the source of my opinions and the, the conclusions I come to, my evaluations? The things that I consider, those, that logizomai batch of Greek terms that covers the idea of the fact that we still think, we still have some vestige, of the image of God and His likeness, and the fact that we can still reason, but what's that reasoning according to? The light's been darkened. The light's been removed. It's as sad and pathetic as the prophet Ezekiel writes in chapter 8 through chapter 11. It takes God four chapters to finally leave the temple, right? He doesn't want to leave. But look what they're doing, son of... Son of man, look at what they're doing in the wall of their imaginations, behind the walls, inside the darkness, the creeping things on the walls. That's where our cognition lies apart from the light of Christ. The image of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that living logos, that word, the word who himself said, I am the way, the the truth. And he could also say, and I have revealed that truth to you. I have given you my mind. But there's some qualifier there, isn't it? That's not for everybody on the planet, is it? So what are we up against in our day? A guy named Robert Jensen wrote in Essays in Theology of Culture, the nation built on enlightenment has not merely become ignorant and unthinking or even anti-intellectual, but is becoming incapable of thought, end quote. Is that not true? Your, your, your head is spinning from night to night as you hear the, the latest heresy or the or, or the latest abomination, and you're, you're thinking these people aren't even... I would say they're, they're wrong in their thinking in the past. They're not thinking at all. You wonder if they have a mind. So in order to resolve this problem, you know what has to happen. There has to be an awakening. There has to be an illumination. That light has to come back, doesn't it? If we're going to think according to the truth. There has to be a rebirth of the mind in order for a person to recognize Christ, hear his voice, as Bruce was talking about that voice that speaks to us in this powerful gospel of John's. So I'm going to give references to a lot of historical figures that were mainly historical leading up to Christ and then in and around the time of Christ that we can understand and appreciate the words with which God has ordained this apostle to write this gospel right at the opening of the door to it to this gospel. Origen had said the method of revealing Jesus is through the understanding. But the understanding is darkened. So that's why we say the revelation of God takes place in this gospel, but God must reveal himself through it. That's his sovereignty, isn't it? He must do that. I can't do that myself, no matter how much I read and study the Greek and all the rest. No matter how much I read from commentaries, no matter how much... I think it through, I'll never come to the place of full revelation. God cannot be known apart from God revealing himself. But we have that. But here's our culture. A lot of reading this week. From Tuesday through, I was blessed because Barbara was working and she's getting ready for the banquet So I had a lot of time on my hands, folks. I hope you have a little yourself. So reading the, there's a wonderful book by Bradley Green called The Gospel and the Mind. He writes this. It really sets the stage for where we're at right now. Ultimately, where the gospel is not holding sway, that would be in our country right now, it should not surprise us to see the subtle or not so subtle disintegration of or rejection of Meaningful intellectual engagement and activity. As the modern world has jettisoned its Christian intellectual inheritance, there has been a corresponding confusion about the value of the mind. You wrote this 12 years ago. Even of the possibility of knowledge at all. Is the possibility of knowledge being questioned in our day? If knowledge is the thing that helps me to the revelation of God, if, if, if that's... What's required for me to love him? You can't love somebody you don't know. I have to know him. So they're wondering, maybe we have from time to time, if knowledge is even possible. We know that truth and the accuracy of reality, how things really are, is held in question more and more every day. He finishes, whether of God or of the created order, end quote. But here's the thing. That strikes me as I'm reading through these things and sort of contemporizing where we're at to set the stage for this launch of John's gospel. Sadly, even Christians have stopped thinking, haven't they? Not all, but many Christians they don't want to think anymore. They want to be entertained. They want to have a good feeling when they go to church. They have plenty of excuses for why they haven't done their devotionals. They don't want to think. They want that done for them. So Satan said, fine, I can take care of that. Here, it's called social media. I'll do your thinking for you. As a matter of fact, you're going to speak in these little sound bites that you pick up along the way because you want to sit and listen. I get that. Hey, that's fine, the enemy would say. And our minds turn to mush because thinking takes work. Why? Because we're fallen. Even as Christians, we're fallen, but we're still challenged to think. So the disengaging of this mind, even for Christians who have had their minds illuminated, now have the apparatus to go from gnosis to epignosis, the deep, intimate knowledge of God that would reveal Christ in a very real way. As I've said often, the problem we are facing in our evangel is they can't see Christ. We want them to be able to see Christ. Well, that has to start with us, yeah? That has to start with us. I have to see him, and I can't see him unless I know him. And I don't know him if I don't engage my thoughts on him in deep ways. I felt at times like my brain was bleeding. I'm very challenged. I was telling the folks this morning, I'm son of a farmer. I'm a dirt worker. And he said, "That doesn't matter. Watch what I'm going to show you. Why? Because you love me. And if you love me, you'll seek me. You'll seek my presence always. You'll seek my strength. You'll seek my wisdom. That's one of my names. You'll seek knowledge. Because I am the Logos. So when we disengage our minds, the faith becomes sort of a rote repetition of what we've been doing traditionally. We want things mailed in for us. Can we just confess that? We talked about humility first hour. Can we just confess that in our humility? We want it done for us. It takes too much work to actually get to know the living God. That's a bit on the massive side. When we do that with our... Without sharpened minds, what it does is it makes our apologetic shallow and far less compelling. You have to think to be able to engage the dead and blind when they're shouting, when they hate you. If, if that's a struggle to believe that, look at the life of Christ So instead of biblically informed, powerful, illuminated, rhetorical engagement with other people that has love in view, that has a desire for their soul to be saved, we descend into bickering and barking, protesting and picketing. Why? Because it's easier to get mad and just say, you know what, I, I disagree with that. And you know what? I'm getting tired of them saying that. What's wrong with what they're saying? I'll tell you what's wrong. Here comes a soundbite from social media or from some teacher, some little nugget they picked up. What would happen if we had a body of Christ that are all thinking people? Because here's what happens. When it takes thinking to know and it takes know to love and when you do know, you learn how to love that which you didn't understand. You see, we fear the things we don't understand and so it's easy to hate then. I hope that makes sense to you. The man, mind of man is the battlefield in the war on souls. It's the battlefield. It's for the mind. He wants to distract you. He wants to pollute you. He wants to bolster... This is the enemy. He wants to bolster your pride so you think you're right, so you become a right fighter. Arguing with the television. Feeling indignant because how can they dare say this or do that? How will we ever be compelling? How? will they ever find us winsome enough, just a little bit winsome enough to want to hear about the most important being in our lives, the one who came to save our souls and our hope is that he would save theirs. We talk about the gospel. We elucidate on the gospel, the gospel over and over again. How many times does this group need to be saved? If you can get through this, if you can get through this verse without reconciling with God, save your time. If we're going to know God and the truth about reality. We have to engage the mind. We have to become Christian uh, thinking, Christian's eternal life. How is that defined in the high priestly prayer by Jesus in 17.3, John's Gospel? And this is eternal life. Well, he's got my attention. What is it? That they may what? Know you. That they may know you. That's how important the pursuit, the vigorous, consistent pursuit of knowing God in Christ is. That they may know you, the only true God. I'm glad he defines that for the readers. The only true God and Christ whom you have sent. The Christian life really amounts to being captivated by and immersed in this growing body of knowledge. This understanding of who God is in Christ. Christ, the only one who makes that possible. So this is where the battle is. The enemy of the souls is vehemently opposed to you growing in your he doesn't want you to engage your mind. Your favorite television programs on. You'd rather check Facebook for the 15th 20th time today. It's fun. It's an indulgence. Like the dainty morsel that Proverbs talks about, I just got to see. It's fun. that time is gone. The time which he created. He's outside of it. This is a created thing. It's our context. I'm going to put them in something called a timeline continuum, and I'm going to see how they steward that time. So Satan wants you to relax, chill out, lighten up, will you? For we don't walk, though we walk in the flesh. 2 Corinthians ten three to 5 we are not waging war according to the flesh. To me, that already implies there must be a war of some kind. Well, he defines that, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We don't arm ourselves in the NRA sense in the war that we're in. We're not nationalists who are going to pull out our rifles and sidearms and AR-15s and start fighting. What is our battle? But have divine power to destroy strongholds. Oh, yeah. You mean like Washington, D.C., right? Oh, he wants you to think that. The one who is malevolently brilliant and knows you so well. Why? Because he can read your mind? No, because he's seen myriads of your type go by over the millennia. He knows what you're tempted by. He knows how to get you sidelined. He knows how to keep you out of the real battle. This is it. The war on the mind. That's why John opens with what he opens with. In the beginning... Was God? No. Well, yes. That's not the word he used. In the beginning was what? The word. So we have to come off of our understanding of that in the sense that we think of word, we think of words individually formed together. They're cobbled together. They're marshaled together so that we can express what? Ideas what Plato used to call forms. They wrestled with this. They grappled with it. There's, we have this divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. You mean by getting the boys together and showing them what for down on the market square? No. And every lofty opinion that raises itself up against the government the form of government we prefer the one thing that keeps you from the living God the knowledge of God that's what's revealed here strongholds arguments lofty opinions ideologies yeah is not the root word of that idea Why? Idea is a massively important word because God has ideas and he speaks and they come into being. You and I carry his image and likeness so we get ideas informed by what? That's the point of what we're talking about. What's informing your ideas that form your ideologies, that shape your worldview? Words carry ideas that makes words critically important. But he is the definite article. He is the logos. He is the word. Strongholds, these are fortifications or fortresses. When they're used metaphorically like it is here, it's talking about... um, Just what he's saying here, the the points, the strong points, the arguments, the opinions. So it's not like a literal fort, although you can think in terms of a fortress because that's what it's talking about. But you and I are in fortresses, but we're set free. Those are fortresses of protection, according to our knowledge of God and our trust and our faith. He becomes a mighty, what? Fortress. Is our God. For them... They don't know it, they might not be able to recognize it, but they're imprisoned by the things that they hold to. And we, we're bewildered, we're saying, how can you believe those things? Those things are just rankly false, they're not true. Arguments, logismos, these are calculations, reasonings, these are the, this is our war right here, this is our war. This is where the battle rages for the true right knowledge of who our God is. The classical Greek writers used it as of consideration, reflection, that kind of thing. That's how they used that logismos term. Lofty opinions mean a high elevated place because they raise themselves up and then when kata in the greek is there it means against so they raise themselves up with their opinions against what i should say whom he says doesn't he he says we destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised up against the knowledge of god yes and take every captive thought captive to whom to the Logos, to Christ. We take every thought captive to him and say, is this true? According to what you've revealed to us. Raised against. So, here's what to set a contemporary stage for us. At least my limited understanding of this idea of what's known as constructivism. Anybody familiar with that term? Constructivism? Yeah, it's sort of uh, a leftover from postmodernism. And let me just, I'm going to read a definition so that I don't butcher what it really is. I'm going to read this from somebody who understands this concept. But you'll see how it's being foisted on our culture when you hear it. So it's a teaching philosophy that's growing rapidly. A teaching philosophy that's growing rapidly that uh, posits this. This is a quote from Patricia Rice Doran. That's the article I referenced on this. It was very intriguing. Individuals create knowledge for themselves by interacting with the world. Understanding of the world is shaped not only by the information the learner encounters, but also by his or her unique culture, personality, development, environment, and other variables. Leave it up to them to define what knowledge is, to define what their reality is. Let them make their own choices. This has got some long history. Some of you may be familiar with the, the Swiss child psychologist Jean Piaget. It comes from him, and then others after him. It's they create their own version of reality. So our children, so they they this was been in the universities for some time, right? but it's gotten younger and younger and younger. Now it's throughout the schools. Now it's uh, propped up as that which is the pinnacle of virtue, is this whole idea of let them construct their own knowledge, construct their own reality, and make their own decision, even what gender they might be. It's up to them. This is where all of this that we're suffering right now comes from. So this thought, this philosophy is decidedly, as you can see, it's subjective, it's humanistic, it's relative. It's going to be relative from one child to the next, from one mind, they're creating their own. That's your truth. You may have heard that phrase many times. That's your truth. We have one who says, I am the truth. You can't come to the truth apart from me. It's impossible. So it's very, very humanistic, obviously, relative, earthbound, and transient, right? So we hold to what we could call biblicism over against that view. This is our battle, the strongholds, the fortresses. That's one of them. That's one of the current ones that we're fighting against. We've kind of moved out of postmodernism. Humanism is still there, and the hangover legacy of postmodernism brings us this uh, construction view, this constructivist view of child development. Now they go into the younger and younger, and younger ones. That's how you can see things in the media about uh, a drag queen going and doing a, ch- a reading in a child library, and you're you're are like, this is I'm I'm in a nightmare, right? I'm in it, this is an upside down world. Phil or uh, Timothy Keller might put it that way, an upside-down world. It doesn't make any sense. This is descending down into the rabbit hole. Alice's rabbit hole. Everything's crazy down here. What's going on? Well, this is... What do we fight that with? This. But it's not a fistfight. It's not an argument. It's somehow finding opportunity... To speak truth, what? In love, in the context of whomever the Lord has allowed to intersect with your life. We believe in the sovereignty of God, right? So he's appointed who your family members are, who your co-workers are, who your friends, your neighbors are. So in in love, you pray for them and you're praying and you're praying and you're praying. Lord, help me to understand them. Then help me to use words to formulate some effective Way to be compelling in my argument because they are being deceived and their soul is being destroyed. Their eternal destiny hangs in the balance. So the true knowledge can only be gained through Jesus Christ. We, we know that. The eternal Logos, which is objective, theistic, absolute, transcendent, and eternal, you'll see that is the opposite of the other set of that would define this constructivism. Listen to what Jesus said. Don't you love the timeless nature of the Word of God? It's like you don't have to conjure up something new that really meets this contemporary culture. <laughs> Jesus said he was excoriating the Pharisees and there were lawyers there. That's uh, typically the scribes or lawyers and they're, they're attacking him and he is just coming on strong with the truth. <clears throat> but he, in Luke eleven fifty two, he says, woe to you lawyers. I mean, this is, we don't use that expression, so it might not hit us the same way. This is, this is a powerful expression. Woe to you lawyers for you have taken away. Listen to this, the key of knowledge. What's that? So we say, Woe to them that have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. These sweet, young, vulnerable, naive children whose soul you're to, to shape to be used to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You didn't accept it yourselves, and now you've shut them out from the key to understanding, from the key to what's true, from the key to what really is going on in our world. And so you have a bunch of of parents who, because of the cult of niceness, have been intimidated not to do anything about this, they feel helpless. They're like, I think this is wrong, but uh, if I, I, I don't dare say that because I will be ostracized. I might lose my job and I might lose my friends. Listen, this is where we are. This is, this is where we're headed. And, and, it, and it won't get lighter until it gets darkness. The light comes after the darkest darkness occurs. The darkest point of the night is when? Just before dawn. And he's coming. He will dawn. But he's already risen in your hearts, the scripture says. He's risen in your hearts. Be thinking, Christians, this is the Logos who is in your heart by faith. Love them enough to care about them, to craft or, or to brace yourself for a perhaps protracted investment in the relationship and study and think and pray. It's the objective of Satan. And I kept this in the outline for you so you'd have this. The objective of Satan is to interfere with, obstruct, interrupt, disrupt, and corrupt. The knowledge of God and so destroy the soul. There it is. We need to remember this every day. What is he distracting you with? What is he polluting us with? What is he brought up as a convincing argument in the latest batch, in the the latest news cycle? What are they foisting on you to think differently? And be careful because if you don't think this way, you'll be punished. Because the cult of niceness will punish you. One way or another. We're seeing that all, all around our country right now. Second Corinthians 4.4, four, The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Colossians 2.2-4, two, two That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. You see, that which he entrusted to the apostle as we were going through the book of Acts, he entrusted him with the revelation of something that had been concealed, now revealed, which is the mystery of God and Jesus Christ. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, he says in whom are hidden all, mind you, all the treasures of wisdom and what? And knowledge. That's where it all has to come from. Or rather, from him. That was the introduction. I'm going to have to let you out early today. It's a pity. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Father, help us with the time that's so very short, at least for today. We pray that we have more time to meet again. Thank you, O Lord. Give us these last remaining minutes, this time, to show us the things that you would have us come to an understanding of today. This we ask in your Son's precious and powerful name. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. One verse. Three massive monumental clauses. That's why we dare not go any further than this verse. So the first is, in the beginning was the word. So the word I want to draw your attention to in that clause is was. So in the beginning, where have you read those words before? RK in the Greek, the beginning, where have you read that before? You see, he's outside the timeline when he started everything the heavens and the earth were made in the beginning god created right he already was in the beginning was the logos this greek verb and is imperfect in its tense which just means it's past time in its frame it's it's past tense So before, in the beginning, he was. That's the point. It's also active voice, which means the subject is the state described by the verb. So time and all physical and spiritual creation appeared at a specific point in time that he created but before that the word was. This is clearly a declaration of eternality. So saying in the beginning was the word means the word is eternal. Whoever he's talking about here or whatever, as all we have in the English is the word word, that actually has a lot of limitations to us. I've got a lot of words on this page. What? Who's the logos? What does that mean? That's what we need to find out. But for of a certainty, it is at minimum, El Olam, the God who is everlasting, everlasting God. From everlasting to everlasting, he's God. You see, you can't just fly by these things. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119.89 The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures endures forever. Psalm 119.160 And then Jesus in his Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24.35 Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And he could have continued if he cared to, because when I made heaven and earth, I already was the word. I already was the eternal logos. And then at some point creation happened and we are on that timeline, that space time continuum. He created space. These are things you can't wrap your mind around, right? Trying to wrap around your mind, try to wrap your mind around the concept of eternity. It's like you might as well try to wrap your mind around literally the world or wrap your arms around the world. It's like you can't. But when he says he created the firmament, I remember studying what, what, what's the firmament? He created space. So what if you have if you don't have a clock ticking and you don't have space? One philosopher said, nothing is what sleeping rocks dream of. What's nothing? How's your mind doing? See why we need to be thinking, people? (laughs) It isn't long before we're caught up in one serious conundrum, which makes us glorify God. He is absolutely otherly. We don't, listen, don't get caught up in thinking you have to explain everything about God. Had a young man ask me on the fly to explain the Trinity to him. So I handed him off to David. <laughs> right? It's true. <laughs> the word of the Lord remains forever. The word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. That's Peter's take on it. What we've given you is we've given you the eternal Logos. And in there is the self-revelation of God. In there, you'll know the truth about your situation, about who God is, about God's means of reconciling with Him. So second clause, and the word was with God. You see how I have underlined the word with. What does that tell you? How about that the word is a person in a relationship? To say the Word was with God implies that there's more than one person in the room. The Word was with God. So this is relational. So He's eternal and He's a person with a capital P because He is also deity, as we'll see in number three. But He's in relationship, and that's important because if you want to know anything about relationships... I always tell people, I try to remember myself, start by looking at the Trinity. That's the perfect model of a perfect relationship. And see how Father and Son relate with each other in perfect love and submission on behalf of the Son. Delighting to do the Father's will and so on. It's beautiful. It's glorious. We won't understand a thing. And so neither do those who are stuck under this nonsense of constructivism will they ever understand if they're left to themselves because they're dead and blind. They need to see the light of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They need to see that in us. So the statement gives unequivocal proof of his personhood. One writer said, no interpretation of these words fathom their depth or makes worthy sense which does not recognize the Word is a person. End quote. Three. Third clause. And the Word was God. So he's... Eternally coexistent as a person in relationship, and he is part of the triune Godhead. This one that he's about to reveal. Look at how much we already know in his opening prologue, in the very first verse. So I'll give you a little bit, we'll have to work the rest of it in. Uh, as we go along, because there's more that I would like to show you so that we can all have a deep appreciation of this term that's used in the Greek, the logos. Because the, the idea of logos had been around for hundreds of years before Christ was even born. So we want to look as much as we can in the time that remains at the ancient history and the legacy of the logos. Logos. So Heraclitus, who existed in Ephesus in 500 B.C. Okay, so this is, we're looking at the Greek philosophers, because throughout the ages, the Greek philosophers mused over this. They, these are some of the deepest thinkers that we've had in the human timeline. They're profound thinkers. And they knew that there was something, and that's how they referred to that something. It's explained in that term, logos. Logos. Well, Heraclitus Heraclitus was in Ephesus, and that's where John was. So his influence for 500 years has been permeated in that that town. It helps us to understand, perhaps, why he chose this particular word. But it has a long-standing history. Because after that, you have Plato, who comes along in the 400s B.C., philosopher, teacher in Athens, and so the academy, as it's referred to, is, is formulated. His student, Aristotle, comes along. He learns from Plato. And these are the things they're talking about. They're talking about what, how to define this logos, something that they knew. Well, when you think of Romans 1, it's helpful to know and understand how we can see that in Romans 1, it says that they are without excuse because... Any reasoning, clear-thinking person with their eyes open can see that this didn't all happen by chance or evolution. Time doesn't allow us to go into any of those things. But they knew that. They knew that much. And so they're talking about these things. Aristotle, and after him came Zeno of Sidium. He is the founder of the Stoics. You've heard of the Stoics. In three twenty two, he was influenced by Plato. So this thinking is moving along. So it's and I'll read some of the snippets of where they landed. It took a whole lot of study, but it's it's worth at least giving sound bites from. Heraclius knew that there was a divine power of function by which the universe is given unity sound familiar with our theology our understanding of god it gives it also coherence and meaning we're leaving that to our children now to discover meaning on their own the stoics there was a, there's cosmic reason capital r reason exists there's a there's a a a being that is defined that way, that they define that way, controls the universe and is imminent in human reason. So from the image and likeness, we are reasoning people. Reason pervades the entire cosmos. So they were uh, influenced by Plato. And this just moves forward till we get to John's time. So it's not by the time you get to the end of that timeline, you get to John, you understand why he chose the words that he did at the beginning of his gospel. Neither a personal God nor even a personal being, but a metaphysical abstraction is how they looked at it, though. They didn't look at it like a person or an individual being. They looked at it as a force or a power. That's how they. But it's a reasoning one, one that has wisdom. But then in the, about the time frame that John was alive came a Jewish philosopher-historian named Philo. Now, he's really important. Because he influenced, I think, uh, John's world at the time the most. Well, Philo was influenced by the Greek philosophers as well. He would read about what the philosophers had to say about what the Logos was. And he found that in their Jewish scriptures. He, he, He knew that it defined God. So Philo made frequent use of the term Logos. It was the central place in his theological scheme, his discovery of Greek thought in the Hebrew Scriptures, especially places like Psalm 36, verse 1, means, expresses that God is the transcendent God. He is the Creator. He is the Revealer. And so he took Psalm 33, verse 6, And where it says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breadth of his mouth, all their host. This is the Hebrew Dabar, D-A-B-A-R. That was the word to him. So in the Hebrew, that's the Hebrew equivalent of Logos. He's the Creator God. The ones the Greeks have been talking about is actually found in our scriptures, in our Judaic understanding of who Yahweh is. He's the Creator. He's the Revealer of Himself. And so you have Isaiah fifty-five eleven. So shall my word. There's that word again, Da ba, in the Hebrew. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He understood this. He's writing about this. He's living, of course, you know, he's from Alexandria. There's great respect for the minds that came from Athens, from the academy, and also from Alexandria. We know of a great theologian from Alexandria. His name was Augustine. So Philo is from the same area. So these are brilliant thinkers. They're deep thinkers that are coming to these conclusions, but they're all insufficient. Even Philo's conclusions as a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher who's who's rummaging through all from from Plato forward and, and saying, here's who that is from their Jewish scriptures. So it's to him the Platonic concept of the world of ideas. God thinks something and he speaks it and it comes into being. They knew that there was a power that was doing that and did it with wisdom and with great reasoning. And so he's picking up on this. He finds it compatible with the Jewish Scriptures. Both God's plan and God's power. So in his biblical exegesis, the logos to him, which would be the Greek word in the Septuagint, he's listened to these things. These are the conclusions he came to. It's the angel of the Lord. It's the name of God. It's the high priest. It's the captain. It's the steersman. It's the advocate. It's the Son of God. It is termed as a second God. It describes also the ideal man. It's a pattern with a capital P. God's earthly creation of man. But he couldn't come off of his Judaism to allow himself to see that that was Christ. Paul loved his fellow Jews, and I'm sure John did as well. John's alive. He's reading these things. This is just, These are just little snippets I'm pulling out. I commend this to your own study. And he's thinking, I'm going to open this up. You want a spiritual gospel? Friends that are asking me to write one? Hold on to your hat because I'm going to show you who this... Is. This is like Paul at the Areopagus. This is like Paul on Mars Hill sees all of these, this, this polytheism, all of these various gods, and then the one, because they were afraid they might miss one. They had the, the, yeah, the monument to the unknown God, and Paul says, I'm here to tell you who that is. That's John. That's what John's doing. Jesus Christ. The eternal logos of God mediates and communicates the divine mind to the human mind. It's what we said at the beginning. It's what we want to leave with now that we finish. There's so much more that could be said. There's so much. I spent the entire week digging down in anything that I could find that helped define this single word. Ronald Nash, who's a Christian philosopher, wrote a a wonderful book called The Word of God and the Mind of Man. Excellent book. He says this, he writes this, Jesus Christ, the eternal Logos of God, mediates all divine revelation and grounds the correspondence between the divine and human minds. The eternal Logos is a necessary condition for the communication of revealed truth. Sorry, kids, you haven't got a single hope of knowing what the truth is apart from the one who mediates, who corresponds the truth from the divine mind to us. He's the mediator. He is the Logos. He writes, Indeed, it is a necessary condition for human knowledge about anything. End quote. Well, here you go. And look at what our culture is doing right now. Now you know where the battle is. Now, you know what the war is. But the battle for you and I internally is not to allow the distractions, the laziness, the getting caught up in the merriments of the world to the point where we're so dumbed down, we have no apologetic. We have no argument at all that's compelling. We don't even know what to say. So again, we're reduced to to barking, mocking, complaining, protesting, picketing, Shouting at the TV. That's absolutely pathetic for what we've been given and for what's at stake in our children, in our families, in our friends, in our co workers. And if you found yourself silent, this could be why. This could be why. We've been given a profound corpus of truth revealed in Scripture. But the only way that you'll know any of it is to reconcile with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the advocate. He is the mediator. And then, and then, you receive the Spirit of the living Christ in you who illuminates the truth to you. And you study and make that a lifelong endeavor to study His Word and watch how your argument becomes more and more compelling. But He is the only way to the Father. He is the only way to understand the truth. Finish with juxtaposing Isaiah 46 to Hebrews 1. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. I am God, and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning. That's an amazing thing to say. So you've already determined the end. And then you put things into play, starting with the beginning, to make it happen. And from ancient times, things which have not been done. And then Hebrews 1. Now we're in the New Testament. Long ago at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for how much we were able to learn here this morning in the short time that we have. Therefore, we pray, Lord, that You give us more time. Indeed, we will never exhaust time. Time will disappear when we're with You in glory. And we will spend an eternity learning more and more and more ad infinitum of who you are, of marveling in your glories. We won't be there. We won't understand truth. We won't see you revealed unless that revelation comes through your Son, Jesus Christ. So we pray for those who do not know you in this way, that they might see the glories of the face of Jesus Christ hidden in a word and now revealed. Help us with that, I pray, that we would bring you honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen.